Bob, Bob, you know we're we're getting all your swear words on internationally sent all over the world. I just so you know that. <laughs> all right. Okay, where the hell is Marcy? <laughs> Good question. Are you going out the world, or just the, the vocal? No, the pictures. I think. But there's nothing I can do about the picture. <laughs> none of none of us, Sue. So we're stuck with it. I think it's just audio, Sue. Did you say? Yeah, I, I was joking. Okay. Did you? <laughs> I I think at this age, for most of us, there's very little that we do that isn't embarrassing. But anyway, we're. Um. Okay. Just a couple of notes. Um, it's good to see you all. I, I can't tell you how I'm saying this seriously, how glad I am always to see you guys. Always. Always. I'm sorry we're not physically together, but um, it glads my heart to be here with you all. So, um, Just so you know, I'm going to put together a prospective reading list to finish this workup that we've started. Um, and... Um, and bring all of this to an end, <laughs> finally. Um, I'm, I'm going to send it out in the next few days, and, and would you all just let me know what your response is to um, what I'm proposing and whether you want to go ahead. Um, most of the works I've got on my mind are short. I, I've thought about doing Charles Dickens and Jane Austen, but I, I, I'm just wary because we've been at this for so long, and I don't. And Mark hates it, Jane Austen. Um, that's enough of a reason to do it. <laughs> no Jane Austen. No, that that Suzanne just said that. And my response was that's a reason for doing it. Then, God, Mark. Um, Jane um, Austen is horrible. <laughs> uh, Jane, oh God, to do. I'd rather we do Faulkner. <laughs> well, oh, you're not you're not in charge. Thank God. Thank God. No. What what can I say? It's, it's good to see you all back in your old spirits again. God. <laughs> anyway, I've, I've thought about doing Jane Austen and Charles Dickens. Just for Mark, I'm, I may do those now. Um, if we do do Jane Austen, by the way, just so you know, it will be Mansfield Park because I, 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 my gratitude for Jane Austen is greater than I express, but I, the the work the one work that stands out in my mind is the one work that most people are not going to read, and and she does things she does things in that work that she doesn't do in the others. But anyway, I'll send you a, a, a reading list. What's on my mind immediately right now? I'm going to mute you all so that we so that the sound problems go away. Um, what's on my mind right now is that. And I, I'm gonna. I'll put it in my note, and I would be really grateful to hear from you guys, um, honestly, an honest response. Because of everything that's going on in America right now, that I'm sure is troubling to all of us. Um, I'm troubled. Susanna is. We're. I mean, we're watching horrible things, and I'm. I'm actually glad that we're doing Melville at this time because Mo, or Billy Budd speaks so directly to the problems in. I, I didn't plan this. It, it's just a fortuitous thing. 
Um, Hawthorne wrote a lot of short stories that are among the best short stories ever written by anybody. Um, Artist of the Beautiful and some others. I, I wouldn't do that. I, I mean, we could do six or seven Hawthorne stories and I think you'd all enjoy them. I've got two in my mind because of Billy Budd. Um, one of them is called Young Goodman Brown and the other one's called My Kinsman Major Molyneux which is about a political upheaval. It, it just so matches up with Billy Budd in lots of ways and I thought it might be appropriate to do that because in both Hawthorne and Melville um, both writers are looking beneath the surface of um, what's going on in America to underlying things. Their, their, vision, their vision is honest to the surface. Both of those stories are about violent protest. Both of them. Um, Billy Budd, uh, more directly Mike Kinsman, Major Molyneux. And I thought it might be good to do them um, just to help us all reflect a little bit more deeply on what's going on in our country. So after Billy Budd I'm thinking about doing those two Hawthorne stories even though I wasn't planning to do them. And then I'm going to give you this reading list um, and ask for your responses to tie this all up. So I'll, I'll send that in the next few days. Um, let's, let's say a prayer for the um, poems tonight. I, I'm going to read several small poems of Emily, Emily Dickinson because they go to this experience of um, renunciations. I'm so sorry Debbie's not here. Debbie asked me a question during the week and I'm, I, I'm just more sorry than I can tell you. Um, I really wanted to answer her online with everybody present because it goes to um, um, a point that we were talking about dealing with Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea. But I chose these poems because they all deal with renunciations because in Old Man of the Sea we experience an old man who goes out who's doing what he always does, he's fishing. I gave you the analogy to a poet, I really believe in, Hel in Hemingway's mind more than I can say, that he had the poet on his mind. He, he was a writer, he would have known. I believe he's, he's got the poet in mind and how important it is um, for um, for people who have that calling and not everybody does. Not everybody's called to be a priest. Not everybody's called to be a writer. Some people are called to be doctors or teachers or lawyers or businessmen, you know. But if you're called by Christ, it's got to change the nature of whatever you do. Even if you're a businessman, you've got a vocation. Um, something different has got to be moving you in what you're doing. So there's lots of ways we can look at Old Man in the Sea. I, I, I try to always hold myself to the literal because I, I so dislike the way people misread and impose whatever interpretations they want to in a work. Um, lots of people just make works whatever they want to make of them. and I. That's not what we're called to do. But if you if you read Old Man with an allegorical levels in mind, then you can be aware that he's got the poet on his mind, that when he goes out too far, he's entered into an ordeal. 
and he's got to deal with that ordeal in some way that tests his human nature so he can find out who he is and clearly lots of the men in the village wouldn't do that so Santiago Hemingway's presentation of Santiago helps us to see something about ourselves because of Santiago's willingness to risk something. It, it's, it's what poets do. It's what we've seen all along. Can you guys all mute yourselves? I should be muted. Somebody's, somebody's talking. I don't know what's... Are you all muted? Anyway, the, the poet is the one who, who risks mysteries. And because of his courage and his faith, generally, he helps us to see things about ourselves that are important for us to see. That's the prophetic aspect of literature that I've been talking about all along. So we can look at Santiago in terms of a poet. We can look at him in terms of a businessman dealing with the businesses, the way sharks will finally undo what he does. I, I, it's hard to believe that most of you haven't had experiences in the business world where you felt yourself surrounded by sharks. That very often in a professional world we think we're safe because we're with colleagues who have the same beliefs that we do. But that's, not, but that's not true. We all know that there are people in the business world who will step on people. That's why we hear people say, I've got your back. And leave a paper trail. You know, that very often in a business world um, lots of people are motivated by one interest. They want to get ahead. It doesn't matter who they step on. So their image is as sharks. So there's lots of ways to look at old man. I mean, I, you know that I think it's, because I think we so badly misread. We, we have this tendency to impose, impose our readings in the world and say, this is what the world is. And it's not. It just shows how badly we read. Um, but because of the importance of learning to give up everything for Santiago, I wanted to read a few poems that deal with this notion of deprivations, renunciations, um, because they're at the heart of our faith. This is, um, if, I'm sorry Debbie's here, God, I'm just so sorry. You know, this goes to my review on Santiago, but let me say it now. You know that Christ, at the heart of Christ's commandments to us is to love as he did. And he made that clear in a number of ways. He said he asked every one of us to pick up our crosses and follow him. That means we have got to give up our lives. That's what he asked. Um, he told the, the guy who came up and asked what more he had to do, he said, then sell all your belongings and come follow me. He asked him to give up all of his possessions. He, did, he didn't ask that because possessions are bad, because possessions are not. But he knew that to follow him completely required giving up everything and you you know in recent I don't know a lot for a long time we've been with certainly with Faulkner and go down Moses that one of the one of the most important things particularly in America with Faulkner and Hemingway and Melville all of them Hawthorne that the danger for Americans is um, getting too caught up with material possessions we saw that in Hawthorne we saw it in Melville um, and I think what both Hawthorne and Miller are showing us is that it's at the root of the Protestant religion. They've given up the sacraments. Um, the proof that they're saved is how hard they work, how accomplished they are. 
it produced what um, who did Kenneth Clark once called the heroic materialism of the modern world. That um, that, that that we are so overtaken with our desire to accomplish and distinguish ourselves that we've lost sight of the gospel calling to love and to sacrifice our lives, things like that. Santiago loses everything at the end, and we're left with this question, how do we understand that man? You know at the end he says um, to the boy, um, I failed. Um, and he says to the shark, I let you down. Um, he thought it was okay until the sharks took him over, and then... Or um, he says to the sorry says to the marlin, and I can't remember the word. It's on the notes that I gave you, but he has this awareness that because he went too far, because he let these things become too much for him, that he allowed them to mean too much for him, it led him to do things that he regrets. So he looks back. He's a different man. So I'm going to read these poems by Emily Dickinson, um, very Protestant, very New England. Um, um, they're not um, catechetical. She's not preaching. Um, she's an extraordinary poet. She, she's describing, um, um, what to call it, states of consciousness um, relating her to the world. And at the root of them are, is a Protestant theology, but she knows it's died. The New England Protestant world is dying. In mid-19th century, it's dead. The theology is dying, Calvin, Luther. But there's still this strong Protestant spirit behind people. Even Emerson, who turned away from it all, is defined by it by the fact that that's what he's consciously turning away from. So it's very much a part of the world. And at the root of it is her feeling, her awareness of how important it is to renounce things. One of the most perfect essays I've ever read on Emily Dickinson is one by Richard Wilbur. You guys might write this down. Richard Wilbur called Sumptuous Destitutions. Sumptuous Destitutions. It's one of the finest things on Emily Dickinson. Richard Wilbur was an American poet laureate. I think he's one of the most, I think he's probably the most impressive contemporary poet um, in our time. He, his poetry is extraordinary. But he wrote this essay called Sumptuous Destitutions. I'm just going to read you, very, they're all very, very short, so I'm going to read a number of them and just let you, let them sit with you, okay? Um, I sent you a couple of notes, they're online, they're on the blog. Two of them on, give you a historical background on the French and um, English wars. That's the background to Melville's movie there. And, I mean, of Billy Budd. And um, you've also got among the poems I've given you, this collection by Emily Dickinson. Okay, so if you want a hard copy, you, all you have to do is go online and, and click on it, okay? <clears throat> so Emily Dickinson, just a couple of her poems. This one is, um, none of them have titles. They, they're usually titled by their first lines. Um, Emily Dickinson, success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed. To comprehend a nectar requires source need. When we don't have a nectar, 
and we see one, the juiciness of it waters our mouth. Um, we feel the value of it more by not having it. Once we have it, that taste is gone. By those who ne'er succeed to comprehend the nectar requires sorest need. Not one of all the purple host who took the flag today, those who are victorious, can tell the definition so clear of victory as he defeated, dying, on whose forbidden ear the distant strains of triumph burst agonized and clear. Who never wanted maddest joy remains to him unknown. The banquet of abstemiousness defaces that of wine. Within its reach, though yet ungrasped, desires perfect goal. No near, lest the actual should disenthrall thy soul. Our desire is always greatest for those things we want most, and I'm assuming that for most of it, that would be ultimately Christ, the longing for him. Remember when Christ went through the um, Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. I think people misread that a lot. He's not talking about the poor. What he's talking about those are those who don't have God, who are poor because they don't have him. Blessed are the poor in spirit for... They shall inherit the earth, or, or the kingdom, I can't remember. What he's really talking about is that longing for God, the poverty we feel in not wanting, or not having it. We want, we want that more than anything. We can keep piling up earthly goods. They will not quench that thirst, that hunger. Water is taught by thirst, land by the oceans past, transport by throw, peace by its battles told, love by memorial mold, birds by the snow. Delight becomes pictorial when viewed through pain, more fair because impossible than any gain. The mountain at a given distance in amber lies. Approach the amber flits. What we saw at a great distance suddenly disappears the closer we get to it. Approach the amber flits a little, and that's the skies. What takes its place are the heavens, the skies. Heaven is what I cannot reach, the apple on the tree, provided it do hopeless hang, that heaven is to me. The color on the cruising cloud, the interdicted land behind the hill, the house behind, there paradise is found. Her teasing purples, afternoons, the credulous, the coy, enamored of the conjurer that spurned us yesterday. We thirst at first, tis nature's act, and later when we die, a little water supplicate of fingers going by. It intimates the finer want, whose adequate supply is that great water in the West termed immortality. Remember the um, Lazarus story? On the curb in the gutter, he goes to heaven and, and who is it the, who saw Abraham and asked just for... The rich man. The rich man for just, if he could dip his finger in the water just to quench his thirst. Um, 
who never wanted Mattis Joy remains to him unknown. Oh no, I redid this. Within its hope, though yet ungrasped, desire's perfect goal, no near, less the actual, should disenthrall thy soul. Okay, I'll just, it's just a, all of her poems are not on relinquishments or abstaining, but some of her, it's, I mean, she, she's just a much wide-ranging, right, um, poet. She, her, her poetry covers so much, it's just extraordinary poetry. But there are a collection of her poems, there's a collection of her poems that deals with this experience of, um, being deprived of something and how important it is for the longing. Um, she, she would not have known the real presence, but if you read her poems, it's hard to read them and not feel that she hungered for that more than anything. Okay, um, I didn't say a prayer. God, somebody help me here, please. Let's say a prayer and we'll start on, uh, I'll do a quick review of Hemingway and start on Billy Budden. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for the gift of yourself, this for our lives from you, Christ, and for the gift of yourself at the Mass, for your words. Um, God, you answer our hunger and our thirst in the Eucharist. Um, we should have no complaints, um, poor people, would be happy to have you in them. We have lots of things and still want more. Strengthen us, please, that when we go to your table um, to receive you, we are satisfied, glad. Um, strengthen us in our efforts to put this world away, even with the things we have. Help us not to hold on to them, to, to be glad for what we do have, but answer your call. Um, give our wills to what you're asking. I ask a special blessing again on the work that we do together. Um, strengthen us in our openness to these works, to hear you, um, to find you in the world. Um, we're going to take up a um, book that deals directly with violence and protests and war and a brutal killing um, and an execution. Um, um, these poets gave, them, um, gave their lives to offer us um, their visions, so strengthen our, us in our efforts to be open to them, to hear, to not impose our beliefs on what they're doing, to try to be open to receive whatever gift it is they offer us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord, in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, okay um, just a couple of things before we get to Millville. Did you want something, Doc? Um, very briefly, last week I reminded everybody of the, um, Plato's allegory of the cave because it was my way of asking everybody to be aware that Hemingway was a product of his time, that he'd grown up in a world in which there was no God, um, in which material accomplishments was everything, Man was a product of these forces over which he had no control. Everything was determined. He had no free will. Um, um, if, if we started with Darwin, we would know that um, we're product of um, 
evolutionary forces, biological forces, and we take our place among this chain of animal-like creatures who, who all live by the principle of um, self-preservation. Hemingway makes that pretty clear in so many of the passages where he says that um, the animals kill each other, they eat each other, that they're nobler than man in the way that they do things. But he managed to find some meaning that was that transcended that. I think that's part of the value of Old Man and the Sea, that that even though that's the mindset of Santiago as he as he struggles through this ordeal, he's um, he is um, that's the way he tends to see things. But but what happens with Santiago is that he, in some way, seems to transcend that. He has this great catch, a catch of a lifetime. It's far beyond anything he would have ever hoped to have. But he comes out of it a, a changed man. My own sense of him, I mean, I'm glad to hear differences if any of you differ with this, is um, that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't come out of it feeling that he has to prove himself all the time that he did before, or as aware of what people thought of him. You know, everybody's aware that he hasn't caught a fish in 84 days. The, the parents of the boy um, don't want him to be with him anymore. I mean, you, you, you're aware of a conventional world. And when the woman at the end says um, she didn't know shark things were as beautiful, she doesn't even know. It's not even a shark. But she has an aesthetic sense with no sense of the ordeal that was behind that skeleton she sees. So we're in a world in which people have all these different views of the world, but Santiago has gone through this ordeal, and he comes back, and at least as Hemingway presents him, there's some ways in which he's like Christ. The nail in the hand, the, the carrying of the cross, the constant stumbling, the loss of everything. Um, and it, it's just a very serious question in my mind whether he doesn't bring back some sense of his unworthiness. He let the fish down. He apologized. He actually apologizes to the fish. He says, "I'm sorry, fish." Um, so it's a changed man, and um, one of the one of the works that I just wanted to ask you to keep in mind when you think about old man is Virgil's The Aeneid. We happen to be doing that in the in the uh, Seton group. And I've been reading the opening chapters again. I haven't read them since we did. I'm just I'm absolutely blown away. If you remember the opening books of the Aeneid, Aeneas loses everything. He, his, his home is destroyed. Um, his friends are gone. Hector visits him in a dream. When he and his wife and father and child leave the city as refugees to find a new world, he turns around and finds Chris, his wife, gone. He goes back to the city hysterical, yelling, putting himself in danger again because he wants to find her. Her ghost comes to him and she says, this is not fated. Um, you will marry another woman. Your destiny is in Hesperia. She knows. She's in the afterlife. He doesn't. And she says, um, now farewell. Um, um, I can't remember. Kiss, embrace my son for me. We're in a world completely different from the Odyssey. A Penelope never comes close to a sentiment like that. So even though the first six books are modeled on the Odyssey, we're in touch with a hero who feels things that Odysseus is not capable of feeling. There's a spirit of reverence, of tenderness, of suffering, of having lost things, because we're getting everything right now from the view of the defeater. It's one of the, it's one of the poems I read tonight from Emily D Dickinson. It's very different when you're on the losing side. 
and you have to carry all this suffering. America is committed to, to winning. Um, so we grow up, you know, push to compete and outdo somebody. And Whereas what we get from the Aeneid is how important this sense of going on whether you're victorious or not. So it's the first literary treatment of a calling. It, it's the life that a priest is called to live, to constantly sacrifice his life for a greater good. That's Aeneas for Rome, that's a priest. Um, insofar as marriage is a sacrament for Catholics, it's part of our life. We're asked to give up our lives for each other, um, to enter into the life of Christ. And I, you know that I've been talking about this a lot for the last six months, how important this notion of indwelling to be in a marriage means we have to risk entering into another. We, we just can't make everything the way we want. Um, there's a selfishness in all of us, in all of us, we're asked to put away. Um, to, to risk indwelling with another means risk taking on all of the disorders each of us carry in a marriage. That's an adventure, that's a journey, that's a, um, in, in, according to our Christian faith, that's a cross. Um, so keep in mind the Aeneid, and of course keep in mind Christ when you go back and think about Old Man and the Sea. It's a serious question in my mind whether Hemingway actually gets to that point, but I don't have any question that he's approaching it. Um, I, I, I personally believe that Faulkner was more a part of Faulkner's vision than is Hemingway, but, but the Old Man certainly represents, I, I think, a big change in Hemingway's life. Um, we talked about a number of the themes in tutoring, the limits, the sense of being together, um, the going out too far. I've given you quotes on one of my outlines, so you know you can go back and look at them if you want. Um, let's do Billy Budd. Um, um, I think that I mean I, there's not much more that I can think of to to call to mind on Hemingway, but I. I'm, I'm, um, I don't know what to call it, happily su surprise, surprised by the accident that's just taking place because I didn't plan on putting these two works together. But um, there's a real value in following Hemingway with uh, Melville for a couple of reasons. Um, um, very, two very different views of the American character. Two, one more modern, one a century and a half old um, that's closer to our founding. Um, Melville was close to the, a founding generation. He and Hawthorne both experienced. So both of them tend to go to American principles. It's part of their thinking. It's part of their habits, far more than for Hemingway. Um, the background of Melville's story is the French Revolution. Um, you know that most of the Enlightenment thinkers, Rousseau, Locke, um, Descartes, Kant, um, Voltaire, they're the rationalist thinkers who, who really believe that we should turn away from the church, that religion was a form of superstition, um, and create a new form of government, that the forms of government that people were living under were tyrannous, that all people were created good and were capable of ruling themselves. That's straight out of that's straight out of uh, Rousseau, by the way. Um, all people are born in no. All people long to be free. It's the opening line for Rousseau. Um, I think it's in the 
conf confessions, I can't remember. All people are, I didn't put it, what did I just say? Long to be free. All people long to be free and all people are born in chains. Something that's not an exact quote, but that's basically what he's saying. He believed that the natural man was inherently good and then government was a form of impression. That um, people lived with fear and violence and because they did, they had to form a social contract. So most of the people thinking that, most of the rationalists thinking at that time, thought about forms of government in terms of the social contract. We have, you have to come together to form this contract to get out of a state of war. And all of them were pretty serious about that. So the, the principle of rule guiding most of those thinkers was just that, the social contract. That people were, should have a stronger voice in um, how they were ruled and they should not be ruled by somebody with whom they didn't agree. And we've are, interestingly, I mean, I didn't plan it this way, we've seen the effects of that in Dostoevsky, because what was Dostoevsky, what Dostoevsky was dealing with were the introduction of those rationalist ways of thinking into old mother Russia. So just coincidentally, we happen to be dealing with a work in which all of this was being played out. Except here now in Billy Budd, um, People are living it, and we're, we're, we're dealing with the actual experiences of living out those beliefs. The French Revolution was an attempt to overthrow the monarchy and replace it with a new form of constitutional government, a government in which people had a greater say in how they were ruled. That's fundamental to Locke's theories on government. Locke was one of the important influences in the, the founding documents. So the backdrop is... Um, the French Revolution. England and France are at war. France is um, endorsing a new form of government that, um, that, that does away with the monarchy. England is doing everything it can to hold on to the monarchy and they're going to war over that principle. And shortly after the um, French Revolution, because things were so unsettled by what happened, Napoleon comes to power and tries to carry out the principles more effectively and then we've got the Napoleonic Wars for years afterwards. Um, before the French Revolution, France was governed by the, what was called the Estates General, the Three Estates, and they were in this order. The clergy, interestingly, the clergy, the Catholic Church, was first. The nobles was the second order and the commoners were thirds, and the majority of the people were commoners. The first and second orders were not taxed. Think about the importance of taxation for the American Revolution. First and second orders, the clergy and the noble were not taxed. The common people were. They had strong grievances against the governments because they were having to pay for everything while the aristocracy was living high and so was the clergy, Catholic Church. So when the revolution came, it was really directed at the nobles and largely the Catholic Church. Um, That's the background, okay? Um, that's the backdrop. Um, what I'd like to do, Melville, you, we've already done Melville, we did it Melville, I mean, um, in uh, Moby Dick, so we, we've, we've looked at one of his works and we have some sense of where he lives. You know that he and Hawthorne had this strong sense of what they both called the brotherhood of sin, that men were fallen. If you remember Ishmael in Moby Dick, 
He talked about the universal thump. Uh, we talked about the importance of suffering and um, um, the sense of being a victim, the power that gave Ahab because he could appeal to everybody's sense of being mistreated in their lives. And it was by virtue of his appeal to that that he took control of the ship. Um, the whole point of Ahab's quest was to get back at that whale. More deeply, metaphysically, it was to get back at some principle in nature. Remember that the, that malice, some agency behind the appearances, some divine presence that had a malice in it. He wanted to strike through the mask and get to it. Because for anybody to believe in predestination or the depravity, anything to take away the free will of man was inhuman. It debased the human person. That was Ahab's great quest. Um, what I'd like to do here at the outset of Billy Budd is, is ask you to think about it in terms of concentric circles that, that expand out from a center. Um, and on the, so instead of seeing Billy Budd in, in, in the terms in which we would read it today, because you know after Freud, the focus for the disorders in the human person are personal and familial. We inherit these disorders from our family and um, through therapy we can learn to answer them in some healthy way. But we begin with this perversity. That's, that's at the basis of Freud's theories. I'd like to reverse that because it's truer to what these writers are doing and certainly to what Plato was showing us. Look at it in terms of, of concentric circles like a, like a rock thrown in a pool and um, setting off waves. So at the outermost circle, we've got the French Revolution. There, all the states virtually in Europe are involved in a war. The United States is involved indirectly in, in a sense sense. It was an impetus to the um, French Revolution because of its own war with England. We, esta we established a break from a monarchy and a constitutional form of government. That's why we went to war with them. The belief that all men are created equal under God that um, class distinction should not determine how we're going to live our lives. And we should have the freedom to practice whatever religion we want. Those were fundamental to our war with England. England was holding on to a monarchy, and you know that in England, um, God, I mean, e even as late as that time, I, I can't remember the term for it, but the Irish were subjugated by the Protestants in Ireland because of the actions the state had taken to confiscate um, the church properties and to um, prevent the Catholics from voting. So the priests had property, the landed owners had property, the larger numbers of Protestants had properties, but the Catholics did not. Um, and even Protestants were persecuted by the governments. Pure, um, Presbyterians, Scotch Presbyterians were. If they didn't hold to the established religion of the state, they were persecuted. So, um, so there are larger metaphysical, political issues um, at at stake in the wars between England and France. Okay. Um, one of the important backstories of Billy Budd, as you know, if you've been reading, are the mutinies that took place. 
in England, there were two important mutants. I gave you the materials if you looked at them. If, you, if you've been reading, you, you, you know that Melville's alluding to them. One was in the, uh, what was it called? Uh, uh, not the nor kind of, sorry. Spit. Sp yeah, the, what was, what, sorry, what was the, help me out you guys. Um, one was on the s southeast coast of England. Um, the more significant one was the Nor, the mouth the, of the Thames. Right, the, but with the other one, do you remember, Carl, the one that I'm missing right now? That was Fred. Or Fred, sorry. It was the spit. Somebody help. Here, I'll look. Oh, the spithead. Spithead? Is yes. that it? Yeah. That was the first one, and then the north. Right, right. Um, if you look at the at the um, at the spithead, um, all the issues that were raised by the sailors that had to do with um, inhuman working conditions and bad pay and officers that who were too punitive. I mean, you can almost hear the um, the voices of the protesters today. Um, but they were settled amicably, so there was no war. In the, in the Nor revolt, there was. Um, in, the, in the Nor revolt, um, the, if I'm, I've got the locations. If, if I remember correctly, they blockaded the Thames and so prevented commerce between London and Europe. Um, yeah, the, Nor, the Nor refers to the mouth of the Thames. Right, right. And so its consequences were far more serious and its demands were far more serious. And it took a put down and the, the consequence of it was that um, the leaders of the revolt were executed and some of the major figures who supported the revolt were. Well, it sent a shock through England because England thought if these are our own people revolting at a time like this, when England's at war, where will it stop? So, the, so we've got the French Revolution, one of the closer to home circles is the, are the um, mutinies at Spithead and, is that Spithead? Yeah. and Norse. And the Norse one was far more serious, and you know that um, um, Melville refers to both of those in the opening chapter. So there's a sense in which there's an alarm um, on the part of Englishmen, and you, I think you'll know that at least at this point in the war, there's some concern whether America would come in on the side of France because America was founded on the basis of the same rationalist progressive principles that, that were at issue in the French Revolution. Um, so those are the, the larger enveloping action um, going on for the Billy Bud stories. When the, when the story opens, Billy has just been um, transferred from the Rights of Man. The name of the ship is, is named after Thomas Paine's work, The Rights of Man, which was one of the most inspiring works for the French Revolution. Paine was an American, but he wrote that work in support of it. Um, Billy's transferred from that ship to the Belly Potent, uh, which means um, strong power warlike, a strong power. Belly means war, um, potent means strength. Um, so he leaves a merchant ship, the rights of man, and is transferred um, to the Belly Potent. Ratliff, who is the lieutenant of the Belly Potent, chooses Billy among all the men. Nobody, nobody else, just Billy. 
So he is, um, what do you call it when somebody in America is um, drafted? He's drafted. He has to come aboard and serve. Impressed. He does it willingly. He's, 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 he willingly goes. Um, that's the, the rough backdrop of the story. Um, Melville repeatedly talks about the heroism of Nelson um, in defeating the French in a number of important naval battles. And he mentions some other um, major leaders um, who were involved in battles themselves. But the important thing is that what goes on on the bellypotent ship involving Billy Budd, his Captain Veer, and Claggart, um, one of the officers, um, takes place in that backdrop, okay? Um, I want to look tonight, I, um, I want to very briefly look at um, those circles um, in descending order. Just, just take a few minutes with each of them and look at what, how Melville presents them, okay? So I want to look briefly at the French Revolution, at the fall of man, at the whole question of leadership and authority, and then I want to look at the major characters. Um, Billy, um, the captain of the um, Bill of Rights, and, um, and Veer. Okay, but let me stop here. I know there's one more, I'm forgetting one thing. Um, those are the things that I want to focus on tonight. I'd, um, I'm going to just briefly try to cover the first eight chapters just to get them out. The first eight chapters, in my mind, are a setup for the action of the... So there's not many things to ask about that. I've got a couple of questions that I want to put to you, but right now what I want to do is just try to set things up as Melville does, because very little happens in the opening chapters. One of, one, one of the more important questions is, what does it mean that Billy... Is, is taken from the rights of man, a merchant ship, to the belly potent. What does that shift represent? The other questions have to do with what Melville's doing with the setup, but let me stop. Any questions on just those general, those general issues before we... I want to turn to the text and read some things to get... To see if we can get our foundations here, what he's doing. Any... Questions you guys had about? Oh, I knew what I'd forgotten. <laughs> I'd forgotten. Um, I'm assuming. <laughs> let me cut this short because I, I, I'm guessing some of you will have very little good to say about Melville's language. But <laughs> let me let me make a comment before before we get to the text. Coming from. Hemingway to Melville, is, I'm assuming, was a shock to a lot of people. Hemingway's language, you know, here, here's Hemingway. Hemingway will say, um, Nick Adams, who is one of the constant figures in his short stories, Nick Adams threw out the line in the fishing pole, and the pole jerked, and it was good. <laughs> you know, that would be it. He, he would just describe physically what's present and leave it to us to infer anything beneath that surface, okay? In Melville, two things are going on, and they're really important to hold on to here. I want, I want, this is so important, and you can, you know, you can say, oh, Melville doesn't know, why didn't he just get to it and say what he wants to say? Why does he have to, 
you know, take 10 sentences to something that could be said in one. Um, a couple of things. One is Melville is looking at the implications of things far more closely than Hemingway, far, far more closely. But the thing that I wanted to impress on everybody is this. Melville's writing at a time when America has just broken from England. I mean, we're still close to the, relatively close to the um, American Revolution. And it isn't until Melville's time that one of the writers writing at Melville's time, a poet called Walt Whitman, started writing a kind of verse that nobody had ever seen before. If you read James Fenimore Cooper, if you read um, Longfellow, if you read Hawthorne and Melville, particularly Melville, you're going to feel that you're hearing a language that in lots of ways is English. It's very formal, very articulate, very precise. When you get to Hemingway, it is absolutely cleaned up. It's not the same language at all. One of the things that the Americans faced during the revolution was um, discovering who they were. And I'm not saying this lightly, by the way, I'm not saying it lightly. When Walt Whitman wrote his poems, everybody in America realized that they were hearing a, a voice unlike any voice the world had ever known before. He was writing in a common language and he wasn't using rhymes or meter, he was using other forms of um, poetic principles, balance, um, parallelism, um, a musical cadence, but didn't use meter or rhymes. And what people began to realize was that America was a different nation and that we could not be who we were given to be without stepping into a mystery. Because to continue to write the way Cooper, James Hunter Cooper and the Leatherstocking books or Hawthorne or Melville would be to show that we were still under an English influence. I hope everybody appreciates the risk of that. It's like Robert Foss, um, the road not taken, or, or Santiago going out too far. That America, America was a proposition. That's the language of the Declaration. Um, it's Lincoln's way of describing it. We've, we founded a country based on a proposition that all men were created equal, we could govern ourselves. It had never been done before. So the great test for America was seeing if we could do it. It meant doing something new. We had to risk a new language. We had to risk mysteries. We couldn't fall back on what we knew. This is Santiago. We couldn't fall back on preparations, on knowing we were okay, because that would leave us in the world we came from. So to be an American meant stepping out. And the, so if you look at the founding documents, the, um, the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers, the Constitution, that nothing like that had ever been written before. So there was something in the American character that was risking something new, and it, re it would require a new voice. And Melville's at that point where he's still showing the influence of a British idiom, a British articulateness, a British formality. Um, he's on the brink of something new. We won't get to it until Walt Whitman and the writers who follow them, Hawthorne's at the same place. So as you read, just be aware of that. It, it's just not, I mean, it, it's a very meticulous language, but it, it's important that Melville's dealing with a break. 
that Billy Budd has to do with something going on in America that was new, um, even though it involved all these old things that were coming up in the wars between um, England and France. But let me stop there with those general general comments. Any any questions you guys have or comments or any comments you want to make on on your reading of the story? If, if any of you have finished the story, don't give it away. Um, oh. But any other any other comments or questions? Robert? Yeah. Rob, it's Linda. I felt like I had to um, have, a, we don't have dictionaries much anymore, but Google right beside me for the vocabulary. I know. I know. I, oh my God. I know. I learned a whole lot of new words. I know. So, but I'm, I'm, I've got a whole list of Can I have your copy? Just wait, by the way, before you go, Linda, just do you have your. Linda, I had to do the same thing. You have it, Robert. Constantly. I, oh, yeah. here. Just yeah. j just so you all of you know, there, I got we got two copies so that Suzanne, because I, I, I didn't know what happened to my copy, but I couldn't find it. But we got two copies. One of them called the Oxford World's Classics has um, um, notes at the end that give explanations for all the difficult terms. Um, but I'm having to go to them constantly. I mean, I'm just I'm laughing because. Um, so Bob, yes, one observation yeah, I have yeah. is that, and I, I don't know if anyone else sees it this way, but both authors have a unique way of getting the reader to think um, and and try to grasp the concept that the author's trying to give us. Uh, By both authors, you mean Hemingway or Hawthorne and Melville? Yeah, Heming Hemingway takes the approach that he gives, with, with the exception of The Old Man and the Sea, to me that was a little bit of a different approach than the classic, you know, Hemingway, but that's just me. But he kind of gives you the tip of the iceberg and he kind of gets your mind thinking, right. well, what's really going on here? And as you go through that process, you begin to appreciate and discover what he's really, Hemingway is really trying to convey. Yep, yep. Where, where Melville is a different, a different approach, but is equally effective. Melville gives you an it's kind of like reading St. Paul. I mean, you have to you have to slow down and kind of grasp everything that's there. But that process alone forces you to to get into the depth of what he's trying to tell you. And at yeah. the end, you know, I you know, I know it's 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 hard. You know, it you know, you can give up easily if you if you let it. But if yeah. you really take the time to go through the excruciating detail <laughs> of what he's doing, you really come out of that yeah. with a fundamental understanding of what it is that he's trying to convey. Yeah. So to me, it's both authors being very effective at getting the reader to think about what's going on in the story, but two different, total, two totally different approaches about right. how to do. Yeah, I agree. You know, I like, but I really like your analogy of an iceberg because what I'm thinking of is Hemingway slices it horizontally. He takes the tip, he explains that, he looks for you to look for the depth. And almost, maybe this isn't quite right, Melville slices it vertically. 
he gives you so much about a particular thing and tells you the background and what to think about it and where it went and so on. But from that, he expects you to see the iceberg. And so maybe that's a bit pushing it, but but it almost seems like that's, I, I had to get used to this. I'm also reading the Aeneid and it's so different. And I'm going, whoa, what did I just read? I have to read I agree with you completely. I mean, Hemingway throws the little snow your way. Uh, Melville throws the whole iceberg at you. You're, you're <laughs> yeah. <all> together. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. But well, both are very profound in yeah. you to go through that thought process. Yeah, yeah. Linda, just, just, I, I, um, I, I, your picture disappeared, so I hope you're still there, but just to let you know, I mean, I'm, I'm deeply sympathizing with you because as I was going through, I was just so aware of the complexity mm -hmm. of the language and the problems with the vocabulary. And um, But I also believe, I mean, along the lines of what Fred said a minute ago, that um, that I think Melville is a much deeper thinker than Hemingway. And when we get through with this, we're going to... We're going to be aware of depths of something in the American character and a complexity to what's going on in the American character that we wouldn't get with Hemingway. Um, but it's going to be a real work. I mean, there's, there's, there's no way around it. There, it's just going to take a work to do that. Um, and Sue, just before, you, before I, we get to the book, I'm just laughing because for you to take on Melville and Virgil at the same time is... <laughs> Brave soul that you are, brave soul that you are. Um, okay, um, any other comments or questions? Sorry? I am loving Virgil. Oh, I am too. I'm just, um, you know, I, I, well, I can't remember when we did it, maybe three years ago, I can't remember, but I'm just, God, he just takes your heart. He's just, anyway, anyway. Um, uh, Bob, just, just one other thing, just real quick, because I know you want to move on, but you, you asked the question before about what was the difference between the relationship between the boy in Santiago and the boy in Sam. Right. And that whole, that whole distinction, I think, you know, and I don't know whether we really covered that completely or not. Maybe I missed part of it, but to me... That really has a lot of relevance to what's going on in Billy Budd as well, and so maybe somewhere down the road we can kind of talk about that a little bit. Good. Um, I don't want to. I mean, it's not the time, but I, I wish you'd hold on to that because I really would like to hear what's on your mind when you say that. Um, it'll it'll mean more when we get more of the story behind us because we'll have more to um, to work with. But I really would like to hear that. Yeah. Um, Okay, let's, I want to take up, um, I want to get us in the book so that this language isn't so foreign. Can I have that book back? What, I'm, I'm going to take up these, these four areas. The enveloping action, the French Revolution, the fall of man, 
Melville doesn't go into it, but he touches on it, and I think it's really important. The leadership, the whole question of authority and leadership in the um, wars at large and on the ships. And then I'd look to look, <coughs> sorry, I'd like to look at the um, 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 the three characters a little bit more specifically. <coughs> Graveling, <coughs> sorry, who's the captain of the uh, Rights of Man and um, Ratliff, Ratcliffe who comes to get Billy and then uh, Billy Bud and Veer. I, I want to look at those. There's not much going on in the beginning, but I, I want to leave us with a couple of questions, but to get to them I want to just look at these briefly. So, um, <coughs> page 10. Or if you got if you've got <coughs> I've got the Dover book because it was the cheapest. Suzanne's, Suzanne's got the better book because she deserves it. And um, so this is chapter that it's in instead of page. Say chapter. Did you give chapter yeah, I'm, I'm going to mark. I was just getting to it. Yeah, I will. I, I'm going to make that a point. Um, so chapter three. <clears throat> second paragraph down and on it was the summer of 19 seven, sorry 1797 let's see if I remember correctly and I may be a little bit off the the French Revolution went from 17 I think 89 to 1799 so roughly 10 years so this is towards the end of the war we're getting close to the end of the war and shortly after the war comes to an end, the Napoleonic Wars will start. Um, so it'll be a long period of wars over these modern um, Enlightenment principles. This is the period of Enlightenment, okay? Where the, the, one of the fundamental assumptions is religions are superstitious, get them out of the way, um, reason is sufficient to itself. If reason were left to do its work, as science had, as people believe science had shown, then um, we could do away with a lot of conflicts among um, human beings. It was the summer of 1797. In the April of that year had occurred the, the commotion at Spithead, followed in May by a second and yet more serious outbreak. Um, those were the two mutinies that uh, Milva talks about. To the British Empire, the, um, the Nor Mutiny um, was what a strike in the 1st Brigade would be to London threatened by General Arson. It would be like setting the whole city on fire. In a crisis when the kingdom might well have anticipated the famous signal that some years later published along the naval line of battle, what it was that upon occasion England expected of Englishmen, that was the time when at the mastheads of the three deckers and 74's moored in her own roadstead, fleet, the right arm of a power then all but the sole free conservative one of the old world. The blue jackets to be numbered by thousands ran up with huzzas, the British colors with the union and cross wiped out. It's a little bit like burning a flag. <clears throat> by that cancellation, transmitting the flag of founded law and freedom defined <coughs> into the enemy's red uh, meteor of unbridled and unbounded revolt. So to the British, this was anarchy. To the French, it was the principle of freedom and equality. 
Reasonable discontents growing out of the practical grievances in the fleet had been ignited into irrational combustion as by live cinders blown across the channel from France in flames. Okay. He goes on to talk about the battles and um, Nelson's um, great victories at sea. Um, on, on page 13, it's two pages in, chapter 4. The last, I think it's the last paragraph of 4. Um, at Trafalgar, Nelson, on the brink of opening the fight, sat down and wrote the last brick will and testament. If under the presentiment of the most magnificent of all the victories to be crowned by his own glorious death, a sort of priestly motive led him to dress his person in the jeweled vouchers of his own shining deeds. If thus to have adored himself for the altar, and the sacrifice were indeed vainglory, then affectation and fustian is each more heroic line in the great epics and dramas, since in such lines the poet but embodies in verse those exaltations of sentiment that a nature like Nelson, the opportunity being given, vitalizes into acts. The, po the really good poet is only bringing into words what a human person does in his own action. But notice the words, a sort of priestly motive, adorned himself for the altar and the sacrifice were in Dean Vainglory. It's as if he offered himself on an altar. So the, it's interesting that Melville's using this language. Um, he uses a number of terms, allusions to Billy that call to mind Christ. You know that when the two captains are talking about him, Ratliff um, um, sarcastically refers to Billy as the, the peacemaker. Um, the rights captain calls him that, but Ratliff half makes fun of him. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. <coughs> so both, Melville's description of both men um, carries with it a, a sense of something more, something sacred, something holy. Um, the notion of the fall. Hold on, I've got to find the, the notion of the fall. This is, this is two pages in, in the second chapter. This is when the two captains are, um, are talking about Billy, and we're learning that Billy does not know his origins. Now, this is crucial for the reading. Crucial for the reading. Um, I'm going to give away something here, but let me do this. Um, how to do this appropriately. One of the great things that critic discovered in reading the poets in the 18th century was that so many of the really good ones had this sense that um, the men coming to this continent and what they were doing showed a naivete that set them apart from people in Europe. We know that, <clears throat> that lots of the people coming from Europe looked at Europe in its Catholic character as a fallen garden, corrupted. Catholic Church was full of corruptions. When they came to America, it was with some sense of recovering Eden, that they would recover the innocence lost in a corrupt Europe. So that one of the images that recurs in all of these writers is the, is the image of the innocent Adam. It's one of the 
probably one of the most famous images in the whole of the 18th century. <clears throat> the innocent Adam. <clears throat> that men come here presuming they're innocent and discover to their amazement that they're not. That, that in fact they're in a fall. Every one of the works that we're reading, um, less in, Mel or in Hawthorne, but certainly in Hawthorne in Melville, Billy Budd is presented as an innocent Adam. He has this natural good nature. When you set him next to men, he just shines. He stands out with this innate goodness. So he couldn't be farther away from the Protestant notion that humans are corrupt without grace. He has a natural goodness. He has a stutter. It's, I mean, the, Melville makes a point of saying, with all this glory, there's still a failing in him. Okay? But Melville makes clear that one of the things we've got to keep in mind as we read through this is that there are degrees of goodness in people. Some people have more of it, some have less. But Billy is exemplary in this native goodness. Wherever he goes, um, it stands out. How did you describe him, Doc, at the dinner table? Well, Suzanne and I were talking about him, and I asked her what her thoughts, the way you described Billy Bud, do you remember? Billy, you have to give me a hint what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. All I remember is your last line. You said, he's so good. When men have that goodness, it doesn't bode well for them in the world. Can you hear Doc? Can you guys hear? Can you say it louder, Doc? So my my impression, Robert asked me not to think about what I know about the book, but what I read in the first few chapters. And my impression is that Billy Budd is so good, he's beautiful, he's mostly gentle, he's soothing to people, they flock to him. Anybody who's that good is in danger in the world. Yeah, the other thing she said is that wherever he is, he has a calming presence on people. People flock to him. The, the captain of the rights makes the point of saying that people gathered around him when he took that Red Whiskers guy out. The Red Whiskers guy loved him. I've, I've got to come back to that because it's major. But he had an, um, a, an assuring effect when people were in his presence as if they took strength from him. And her, her description of it is, he was to say, nobody with that kind of goodness ever comes out of his situation unscathed. Something, some, somebody with that much goodness is going to get hurt somewhere. <coughs> so Melville is, is making a point of describing Billy's goodness but he's putting in the context of a fall. And he says, this is in the chapter, a couple pages into chapter two. Habitually living with the elements and knowing little more of the land than as a beach, or rather that portion of the terraqueous globe providentially set for dance houses, doxies, and tapesters. Linda, get your dictionary out. <laughs> God, is, <laughs> um, tapsters, in short, what suitors call a fiddler's green. His simple nature remained unsophisticated by those moral ubiquities which are not in every case incompatible with that manufactural thing known as respectability. Hear it again. We got it in Moby Dick. Um, that the kind of goodness that's innate to Billy can't be manufactured. And you're not going to find it in respectability because respectability is something put on. But are sailors frequenters of fiddlers' greens without vices? Because he's saying 
people on land who live by respectability don't seem to have this kind of natural goodness that sailors have. It's like soldiers and sailors are a class of their own, that they go out, they face the elements, they're, they're more immediately in contact with the elements, so they don't take on these coverings. There's a, there's a more apparent, good, or the goodness in them is more apparent, a natural goodness is more apparent. Um, but are sailors frequenters of fiddler greens without vices? No, but less often than with landsmen do their vices, so-called, partake of crookedness of heart. We've been talking about this forever because once you enter the city, you begin to envy what other people do. You've got to compete. You've got to accomplish. You've got to show you're better than other people. All sorts of vices take root. Partake of the crookedness of heart, seeming less to proceed from viciousness than exuberance of vitality after long constraint, frank manifestations in accordance with natural law. By his original constitution, aided by the cooperating influence of his lot, Billy in many respects was little more than a sort of upright barbarian. Much, uh, much such perhaps as Adam, presuming he might have been ere the urbane serpent, wriggled himself into his company. Uh, just to go over this for a second, we talked about this, remember, when we did Hawthorne, because remember when Hawthorne and Hester met in the forest, and they both agreed to flee, to escape the oppression um, under which they were living um, in Salem because of the Scarlet A and because of Dimsdale's secrecy, the hypocrisy. They decided to flee. She took off the letter. Um, Pearl went nuts, as if in some instinctive way she's saying, you can't act like you don't have sins. And Hester put it back on. Dimsdale left the force as if he were freed because now he had chosen to flee. And, and you remember, Faulkner's giving us an image of the natural man, unaided by grace. But once he set himself free of that, you remember he was attacked everywhere. He wanted to say vicious things. He wanted to whisper in, in maiden's ears that some evil was sent loose in him. Um, here, Melville's giving us an image of this natural goodness um, in Billy, calls him a, you know, like a, what, is, what was the word, unsophisticated barbarian. Um, and that, that sort of description just, he plays variations on it. Um, much such perhaps as Adam presumably might have been ere the urbane surface wriggled, wriggled himself into his company. So, go on a few more lines. Here may be submitted that apparently going to corroborate the doctrine of man's fall, a doctrine now popularly ignored, it is observable that where certain virtues, pristine and unadulterate, peculiarly characterize anybody in the external uniform of civilization, we all put on dresses, we all put on appearance, we act like we're above the fall, we're respectable, dignified, we're good. Um, they, will, they will, upon scrutiny, seem not to be derived from custom or convention, but rather to be out of keeping with these, as if indeed exceptionally transmitted from a period prior to Cain's city and citified man. So there seems to be some natural goodness that man carries. Um, it's not the same as that kind of goodness and appearance that we present to people um, in respectability and the way we carry on, but there is this goodness. But we've also gotten some hint um, um, it's just waiting for the serpent 
um, to to come um, to play some role here. Um, he goes on to say down below, though our handsome sailor had as much of masculine beauty as one can expect anywhere to see, nevertheless, like the beautiful woman in one of Hawthorne's minor tales. What's the name? The beautiful, the, I can't remember the, I can't remember the, sorry. Minor tales, uh, there was just one thing amiss in him. No visible blemish indeed, nothing marking his aesthetic appearance as with the lady, no but an occasional liability to a vocal defect. Though in the hour of elemental uproar or peril he was everything that a sailor should be, yet under sudden provocation of strong heart feeling, his voice otherwise singularly musical, as if expressive of the harmony within, was apt to develop an organic hesitancy. He would stutter. Melville is, and it's really interesting to me, and I, I, I don't think we can underestimate this. Billy, in all ways, seems to have a natural perfection. Um, goodness shines out of him. People feel it. <clears throat> He's capable to any kind of warlike situation where in, that requires action on his. But if he's provoked suddenly and he has to respond, he can't find the words and he stutters. And there's an arrest that takes place. place in it. And it's really interesting to me that it involves words. To find a word to speak before you get angry to respond to something takes extraordinary control. So Billy seems to have this natural perfection with this one seemingly innocuous kind of flaw. But it seems to me the flaw is telling. It has to do with words and what happens when we're suddenly provoked. It's almost as if there's a natural fall in us so our, our, our immediate response is to do something that isn't always good. Um, when Billy has to find words for something, he trips on that moment. Um, <coughs> You know from the story that the, the captain of the uh, Wrights tells Ratcliffe that Billy brought peace to his ship. Um, that before Billy came on board, it was a rat's nest. That there was this red whiskers guy who used to provoke him and once he elbowed Billy and Billy took him down and after that point, um, um, red whiskers loved him and so, but so did everybody else. Now hold on to this because this is really crucial. For those of you who have not read the story, what the captain of the rights described was exactly what's going to happen in our story involving um, Claggart. Exactly. Um, Red Whiskers envied Billy because of his goodness. That's not a small matter. Everybody looks at Billy admiringly. And people who are competitive look at him with envy. Some of the officers who were superior to Billy did, Red Whiskers did, and tried to provoke him. When he did, Billy hit him, and that was the end of that. The, the guy loved him. What's going to happen with Claggart is going to be almost parallel with some fundamental changes in consequences. So hold on to that, because the first one takes place on the rights of man on that ship. The second one will take place at war on the belly potent. Okay? What is Melville showing us in the, in the parallel, in the contrast between those two incidences? Because on the surface, they're almost identical. <coughs> okay? So 
So Melville is showing us uh, <coughs> um, an image of an, um, what seems to be a natural perfection, one that could easily remind one of Adam in the garden. Um, he has all of this beauty. He has this natural innocence. He's like an unsophisticated, um, uneducated barbarian. Um, everything to admire. So on the surface, there's no reason to suspect that anybody would have any trouble with him. In fact, he even brought peace aboard the rights of man. <clears throat> okay. Um, sorry, somebody? Yeah, just, just one question. I mean, one of the things that Melville points out about Billy Bud is he's, he's, he's like a man-child. I mean, he's, he's got that innocence <laughs> yeah. that a child has in a sense that he's yeah. kind of totally unaware of the intrigue that occurs beyond him. And, I mean, Christ, you know, often commented in the Gospels about, you know, be like a child in, in that innocence. And is that, is that a key part of what Melville's trying to weave into the story, is the fact that, you know, he has this childlike innocence and is kind of totally unable to recognize evil when it's right in his face? Yeah. Fred, wait, once again, let's wait till we get more of the story because it's a good question. But, but let me just add, <clears throat> let me throw in there. <clears throat> Christ did say, it's along the same lines of what you're saying, but Christ did say, be as these little ones. If you've done this to me, if you've done it to them, you've done it to me. <clears throat> but he also said, be as wise as the serpent, you know, as gentle as the dove, be on guard, be vigilant. Um... Just, I'll just throw that in because um, what right now what I want to do is just get these first chapters under us um, in the way that Melville presents them because everything is going to come out of this. But I, I think your description of it is right on. Yeah. Um, take a look at page. This is. <clears throat> it's one page. No, it's two pages before before chapter 2, so it's several pages into chapter 1. Um, Captain Graveling from the Rights is um, talking with Ratcliffe and expressing his resentment that he's taken the most important person from his ship, the Rights. And he describes Billy as this um, young man along the lines of what Melville's been, how Melville's been describing him, and saying, on, um, I, I can't give you the page, and mine is page four, but he says, beg pardon, but you don't understand, Lieutenant, see here, before I shipped that young fellow, my forecastle was a rat pit of quarrels. It was black times, I tell you. Aboard the rights here, I was worried to that degree my pipe had no comfort for me, but Billy came, and it was like a Catholic priest shake striking peace into an Irish shindy. He didn't preach, he didn't do anything, but he says, um, or did anything in particular, but a virtue went out of him, sugaring the sour ones. You all know where that phrase comes from, right? The virtue went out of him. That's exactly the phrase used in the Bible when the woman came to touch Christ's hem, and it, it describes a virtue, and because he didn't know that the woman had touched, but it was like a virtue passed out of him. He became aware of it. So that just in his presence, a virtue goes out of him. People feel it. 
Um, but the thing I wanted to concentrate on is <clears throat> um, I was worried that um, to that degree my pipe had no comfort for me. Um, he sugared them. Billy made everybody a happy family. Not again, this is the top of the next page, not again, very soon shall I, coming up from dinner, lean over the capstan smoking a quiet pipe. No, not very soon again, I think. I, Lieutenant, you are going to take away the jewel of him. You're going to take away my peacemaker. It's then that Ratcliffe says, sort of sarcastically, uh, blessed are the peacemakers. Somebody characterize Captain Graveling. Anybody want to make a stab at this guy? He's the captain of this merchant ship. I can't believe, Bob, you haven't had experience with guys like this in all your shipping. Do you guys remember when we were doing the custom house with Hawthorne? And he was describing the head of the custom house. Do you remember how Hawthorne described him? Remember, this is years after the Scarlet Letter. So we're past the revolutionary period. Things have settled. People no longer believe in miracles. The Scarlet Letter is up in that upper room and Hawthorne will come on it and shortly. But he's describing the, the custom house. Do you remember his description of those men? All of these men in this government position? Jeannie, do you remember? Weren't they just killing time? Waiting till the end of the day or the end of their career? Yeah. Yeah, I was struck by the fact that the captain didn't take any charge, but he used the the help that Billy gave him. That was good, but but he was just doing his job, and he was sorry that Billy was going to go because and he didn't know who to do it. What was he going to miss most, Sue? <laughs> the peace of the crew and the. And his pipe and his food. Yeah, I mean, he, he just wasn't, he wasn't into doing it himself. He just wanted somebody to be there to do it. He reminds me of all the officers in the custom house, the way Hawthorne described them. They're, get, they're sitting back in their lures. They're getting heavy. They're eating these sumptuous meals. All they care about is food and comfort. You've got a captain of a ship, a merchant ship. I'm, I'm assuming that it's, it's, a, it's a means of support for the warships some way. I mean, it's not directly involved in war. But he cares more about having his pipe and eating than he does ruling. If you set him in, um, next to Veer, the contrast will become obvious. Um, so this is, and, and remember, this is the rights of man. So that in some sense, this name, I think, gives an identity to the ship, that this is the theoretical basis, the conceptual basis for the French Revolution. All the principles are, are laid out there. Here's so the... Sorry, go ahead. So are you taking that that the captain of the right thinks it's his right to just enjoy? Boy. And that somebody else should be doing the whatever needs to be done in order for him to have the environment in which he can enjoy. Yeah, that's it. My, my thinking hadn't gone that far, but I, but I like your comments. 
I, I think I'd only gone this far, Sue, but I think your description right now is is, is really appropriate. Is that in the rights of man, you're living in an abstraction. You're not living those principles. You're not fighting them. This guy is um, is living for his own comfort. Um, he doesn't want to lose Billy because Billy brought order. I mean, it, it, um, it's just making the point that you made a few minutes ago. I'm just aware that there's a fundamental difference between the rights of man and the belly potent as two ships. And we've got two very different leaders. And the way Melville describes this leader is that this... There is a fundamental, there is a fundamental difference between them. One of them, you have a man of war commander on one type of ship, and you have a merchantman who doesn't have to worry about fighting battles. Not only doesn't he have the capability, but he knows if he gets um, accosted by an enemy ship, he'll hold his hands up like this and say, okay, don't kill anybody, take the booty, take the goods and be on with it. The worst thing he has to deal with are are weather and his ship, the people on board, to keep themselves safe. Really solve that one, he's hoping it will continue to yeah, but it's interesting that he doesn't himself. I mean, he calls the ship a rat's crew, and there's no sense in which he does anything about it. There are two different leaders, two different leaders taking their responsibilities in, in very different ways. I, I, one of the things, I, I don't want to go into it right now, but just to get this out, Melville's got something on his mind in naming the merchant ship rights of man, because that's a theoretical basis for the revolution. And Bellipotent is a warship. I mean, this is a ship that's going to fight out those principles. So we're dealing with two two very different situations, even though in some ways they're related. So it's just important to keep that in mind. And and the leader of the rights is a self-serving, self-serving. Um, he's, what, what's the when you're in service for a while in a in a government? What's it called? Tenure. It's tenure, but it, it's you know it's his his position's locked up. He's he's not taking responsibility for running his ship, um, and he hates losing Billy. It just it 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 throws him in a in a bad light. I want to look at Veer bef- before we before I give you my last couple of questions here. Take a look at. Um, Veer is a really interesting figure, I think. Chapter 6. It's, it's, I think it's hard to read Melville's description of Veer without seeing that he's a very dignified, modest, understated kind of man. He has a, the presence of somebody who has authority. Ratliff is glib. His comment about blessed are the peacemakers is glib. Um, remember when Ratliff boards the uh, Ratliff when Ratliff boards the uh, ship, the rights, he goes down into the captain's cabin and takes his drinks unceremoniously without even asking. So he makes itself he makes himself there's no dignity, there's no protocol. He uses his office to get what he wants. So Ratcliffe is a leader. Um, there are not many good things to say about him. Um, Graveling is a leader. There are not many good things to say about him. These are the leaders of these ships, and and 
um, Melville has made it clear that so often the the men around a leader will follow their leader. What that leader does, they will do. On, on the beginning of, of chapter 6, but on board the 74 in which Billy now swung his hammock, very little in the manner of the men and nothing obvious in the demeanor of the officers would have suggested to an ordinary observer that the great mutiny was a recent event. We know that after the mutiny, officers were taking special care. That it describes um, Ratcliffe standing behind the gunners with his sword out because he was afraid that the men might turn around if they were in a battle. That the great mutiny was a recent event. In their general bearing and conduct, the commissioned officers of a warship naturally take their tone from the commander. That is, if he, ha if he have that ascendancy of character that ought to be his, he should step forward and take command. Because in whatever degree he doesn't, the men are going to step in to fill that void. <clears throat> now this is um, Veer. This is the beginning of six. He had seen much service, been in various engagements, always acquitting himself as an officer mindful of the welfare of his men, but never tolerating an infraction of discipline, thoroughly versed in the science of his profession, and intrepid to the verge of temerity. Is everybody clear what that intrepid to the verge of temerity means? He's fearless to the point of being reckless. He has that much courage. He, he knows in a war situation he's going to have to step forward and do something. Go down a few paragraphs, but in fact this unobtrusiveness of demeanor may have proceeded from a certain unaffected modesty of manhood, sometimes accompanying a resolute nature. A modesty events all the time, times not calling for pronounced action, which shown in any rank of life, suggests a virtue aristocratic in kind. It's as, if, it's as if he was either born with an, an aristocratic quality to him or he was that kind of quality was nurtured because he was raised in an aristocracy. Um, in chapter 7, um, the second, second paragraph, aside from his qualities as a sea officer, Captain Veer was an exceptional character. Unlike no few English England's renowned sailors, long and arduous service with signal devotion to it had not resulted in absorbing and salting the entire man. He wasn't, um, he didn't get soured by his experiences in the service. He had a marked learning towards everything intellectual. He loved books, never going to sea without a newly replenished library. Um, with nothing of that literary taste which less needs the thing conveyed than the vehicle, his bias was towards those books to which every serious kind of superior order occupying any active post of authority in the world naturally inclined. <clears throat> books treating of actual men and events no matter what era. So he would read history, biographies. He would have read a book like the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, dealing with war and action. Um, in this line of reading, he found confirmation of his own more re reserved thoughts, confirmations which he had vainly sought in social converse, so that as touching most fundamental topics, there had got to be established in him some positive convictions which he forefelt would abide in him essentially, 
immodified, unmodified so long as his intelligent part remained unimpaired. His books strengthened whatever convictions he had. In fact, he, they, they had to grow from his reading. His settled convictions were as a dike against those invading waters of novel opinion. He wouldn't go along with things just because other people were. With minds less stored than his and less earnest, some officers of his rank, with whom at times he would necessarily consort, found him lacking in the companionable quality a dry and bookish gentleman, as they deem. He, he never fit in, even his own kind. He didn't go, he just didn't go along. At the very end of the paragraph, or the chapter, some apparent ground there was for this sort of confidential criticism, since not only, because most of the officers thought that he was a little bit odd. Since not only did the captain's discourse never fall into the jocose familiar, but in illustrating of any point touching the stirring personages and events of his time, he would be as apt to cite some historic character or incident of antiquity as he would be to cite from the moderns. He would have, he would have quoted easily from Plutarch or Homer um, or any of the Greek or Roman historians. <clears throat> um, and it, it, it seems to me this is where this is going and this is crucial to see about him. He seemed unmindful of the circumstances that to his bluff company such remote allusions, however pertinent they might really be, were altogether alien to men whose reading was mainly confined to the journals. So most people he associated, most officers were reading contemporary stuff, keeping up with journals. He was well read, he was steeped in books of antiquity. For him, the books of the past were not um, archaic treasures. They were living things. So he found in them a strength for his own convictions that he would have found in something worth reading in his own time. Remember that I've given you this quote from um, T.S. Eliot about literature. Um, that all literature exists in a simultaneous order. That to read Homer well means to read Homer as if he were living now. Um, James Joyce is a contemporary of our world. A hundred years from now, he's going to be old. All authors will fade in the past. The question is, can people read them as if they form a simultaneous present right now? Can we hold on to literature, history, biography, whatever field, treating it as if it's giving us a truth that, that transcends time? that is living in the present. That's been the whole purpose, actually, of our work together. So he stands with respect to his reading in that way. He seemed unmindful of the circumstances that his bluff company, such remote illusion, however pertinent they might really be, were altogether alien to men whose reading was mainly confined to the journals. But considerateness in such matters is not easy to natures constituted like veers. Their honesty prescribes to them directness, sometimes far-reaching like that of a migratory fowl that in its flight never heeds when it crosses a frontier. A fowl isn't going to let the frontier separating two countries, say, um, two areas. 
keep him from his course. So Veer has something in him that transcends time boundaries, historical boundaries. And, and if I can put it differently, it's as if he's trying to hold on to something universal that will help him in the particular circumstance. And I think that's crucial because what Hawthorne, or what Melville's doing is showing that so many of these people, these leaders, seem too caught up in the circumstances in which they're living. They, they have no appeal to something more universal. So the judgments that they make are often lacking. They're partially blind. Veer takes his reading seriously because it enlarges his vision. Um, the fact that he can hold on to so much in literature makes it possible for him to go to something more universal in the decisions that he makes. Okay. Now, um, I'm stopping here. Chapter 8 goes on to describe um, Claggart. And since Claggart's going to be fundamental to everything that happens, I'm going to wait here. I've just got a couple of questions for everybody. Um, these are all set up questions. And I, so those of you who've already read the whole book, if you could just re restrain yourself for a minute, Fred, Francis, if you guys. Um, two questions. One is, in the very beginning of the story, Melville describes Billy um, as a cynosure, a handsome sailor. This is in the very first page. Um, like a bodyguard quite surrounds some superior figure. All these men flock around him. Like Aldebaum among the lesser lights in a constellation. He's like the, the central light in a constellation. The signal object was the handsome sailor of the, pro, of the prosaic time, alike of the military merchant. Anybody, anybody dealing with activities would find themselves drawn to this certain figure. It would have been like, Ma, let's say, Muhammad Ali or Jackie Robinson, DiMaggio. <clears throat> <clears throat> a somewhat remarkable incident recurs to me in Liverpool now half a century ago. I saw under the shadow of the great dingy street wall of Prince Docks a common sailor so intensely black that he must needs have been a native African of the un unadulterated blood of Ham, a symmetric figure un unlike the average. He describes this bed who has this beauty and physical appeal and relates him to the story of Ham, so it goes back to the um, Old Testament. Um, he describes Billy as a cynosure, which means the center of things, and he relates them to a number of different um, events, situations. Um, on, on two pages in from chapter one, such a sinister, at least in aspect, and something such too much in nature, though with important variations, made apparent as the story proceeds, was welkin-eyed Billy Bud, or Baby Bud, as more familiarly under circumstances hereafter to be given, he at last came to be called. So, innocent, beautiful, a sinister, um, related to this black guy in the... Um, um, that took Melville's mind black to, back to the, um, the story of Ham. What's Melville doing by describing Billy Budd in that context? The handsome sailor, the sinister, um, the black guy um, who had the similar qualities. Why does he do that? Um, 
He spends a couple of pages doing that. The central figure of the story is this young man. Why does he... What is he asking us to see about Billy? That obviously these other people who surround him and, and flock around him don't see. I think he's asking us to see his beauty, his inner beauty, the light and the glow that he brings to everybody, the peace. He's, he's more than charming. He's genuinely a good person. Mm -hmm. Goodness comes through, and it's important. I've read it, so it's important to get that known in the beginning of the book. Yeah, yeah. I think he's naive and can't see problems around him. He's naive. He doesn't see the the dangers around him. Marcy, I think that's true. I, I, I'm not I'm not disagreeing. I think that's you're right on to say that. But what I'm asking right now is in the beginning Melville is describing him as um, this beautiful sailor. He's, he's not going to your point yet. I'm, I'm asking What's he doing by presenting him this way, this handsome sailor, this signature, um, the black guy who's like him, who goes back to the line of Ham? Why does he present him um, in that way at the beginning? I, I think you're right. It's a white-black problem you're bringing up. What? No. You're going to bring up a white... No, 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 I don't think... No, I don't think that's what's going I on here. I um, I what he's what he's doing is is affirming the beauty of this black man. Billy and the black guy are very much alike. They they both have these qualities. There's something stunning that's shared by these men. And my question is why what's what is he asking us to see here about I, Billy? I think he's he's uh, making developing Billy. He's making Billy um, very appealing to us. We we as the readers warm up to him. Uh, we want to see where this goes. We want to know him more. Good, Sue. Well, go ahead, Linda. Oh, I just said we're all agreed. We are drawn to. We see his beauty, and we know that this innocent, naive, handsome, charming peacemaker could not do harm. I don't think he would deliberately hurt anybody. And I think um, we're called to see his goodness, and we do, and we're yeah. drawn to that. Yeah. Good, Sue. Um, there's an innocence. I, I liked what Linda said, that word. There's an innocence to him because he's not trying to project this. He just naturally acts in this way. His birth, he doesn't know anything about. He doesn't have any history. He doesn't have any genetics. He, he's not relying on anything else. He's just, he's just an innocent, but he's projecting these good things that other people react to. Now, I've only gotten through chapter 8, so I don't know the end of the story yet. Good. Uh, Good. We're, yeah, so that's my reaction yeah. so far. Yeah. Two well, things. Think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Who? I think he's trying to make the story timeless. That 
Billy Billy Budd is not an exception. That by referencing the the black man and then talking about Billy Budd, he's he's trying to make the story timeless. It's not just this moment in time. The story itself applies to a multiplicity or a plethora of situations, and he's trying to make it more of a universal yeah. presentation than an, an instant in time. Yeah, I, I, I really, I believe that's it. it I, I mean, I think what he's doing, um, if, if we can hold a couple of things together here, it's clear that Melville believes in the fall, and he makes it a point that most people don't even give that notion a thought anymore. That the idea that there's a fall in man doesn't occur, and in so many ways, Billy Budd reinforces that because he gives the appearance of being innocent and good in everything he does, as if that's sufficient. We're going to find out it's not, but but, and there there are hints to that effect. But he's beautiful, he's good, he's innocent, he's he has this power. Everything he does, he does with he. It reminds me a little bit of Ishmael. If you go back to you know, Ishmael was so quick to be able to do it instinctively, and he had that kind of inherent native strength. But two things I want to call to mind here, um, it, and it picks up, I think, something Sue just touched on a second ago that we mentioned earlier, but I don't want to leave it go. We don't know anything about Billy's past, neither does he. And I don't think that's an accident. I think, I think so, I think what Melville's doing is showing us something that is universal. All over the world, regardless of a person's color, black, white, yellow, it does not matter. There are going to be men who have a natural superiority in this intrinsic goodness, this strength, this power that they have. Um, what all cultures do with it is another thing. I mean, that was one of the things at the heart of the Iliad, because remember, Troy produced a very different kind of hero in Hector than the West did with Achilles. What a culture does with a hero matters. Um, different cultures will we'll be able to do different things with the potential that we bring to them. Say. But he's showing us something universal in man that, um, that goes back to our beginnings. But the interesting thing about Billy is that we, we don't know, he doesn't know his beginnings. And I think what Melville's suggesting is that America, America is facing something distinct because we're trying to create a regime in which what happens to people wasn't dependent on their classes, what, what condition they were born into, what their culture was. The, you know, the proposition that all men were created equal and we had this thing to do. That our origins don't matter. Where we came from doesn't matter. What our background doesn't matter. There is this intrinsic... Wait, wait, let me... Hold on. Give me just one. I'm almost... There's this intrinsic goodness that is universal and timeless, but in America, um, there's something else going on. I don't think it's an accident that we don't know anything about Billy's origins or his beginning, or his father. He says, I don't know who my father is. Um, because in America, it's as if we're trying to create a new kind of man. Um, Lincoln said that, the Founding Fathers said that, that, that we were attempting to do something nobody else had ever attempted to do before. Melville is very aware of that. So in the image of Billy Budd, he's showing us something, um, I think Fred's words were right on, it's an image of something timeless, this intrinsic goodness that man has. Um, 
he comes into the world at a time in this war when what's at stake is a new kind of regime, a, 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 politi a, a polity that's going to try to do something never done before. And so what he's done is create the situation in which this character is the central figure, and now we, and as Linda said, and everybody, now we've got to find out what's going to happen to this intrinsic goodness, this beauty that this man has. Um, so those are some of the concerns, I think, that are, that are at the center of the story. I'm sorry, somebody had a question or something. Can, I'm sorry, to whoever it was, can you come back? Yes, sir. It's Jolie. Um, I, I, Jolie, you've been, you've been quiet for too long. I'm glad to hear from you again. Uh, me, uh, me too. I had to uh, put away the uh, keyboards uh, for my piano class at the rec, but uh, so that's why I wasn't on camera. But um, my, I wanted to ask. I mean, at the time, uh, it seems like Melville's ahead of his time because his work is definitely cut out for him if he's trying to not only establish the personhood of a black person, they, black people, women, and the unborn were not even defined as persons by the Declaration of Independence. And so, I mean, I'm just amazed at, um, at his attempt to, you know, even beyond the, you know, creation of a, the idea of a new man or a new type of man, to, to that he gave them goodness, personhood, and full full humanity because at, at the time it doesn't even seem like uh, at least legally there was any recognition of this and I know spiritually it's a different story but um, I, the timing of it is just yeah. striking to me it's, well it's, it, the timing is interesting because it, it's, it's timing is in accord with what we were set, setting out to try to do as a people I just want to say looking ahead because I'm Julie I, I'm so glad to hear what she's just be very careful because one of the things we're going to have to, I mean, I, for those of you who haven't read, there's something laying in wait for Billy. I mean, be on guard because Melville has presented us with this timeless creature who has this innate goodness and beauty. Um, we have to wait to see what's going to happen with it from Melville's perspective. Um, it's time to stop. Let's see. So my, my basic question, I mean, keep in mind the shift from rights of man to the belly potent. Keep in mind the things that we've been talking about. Billy doesn't know his past or his origins. That's not a part of who he is. He, he starts with this natural goodness. He's likened to an atom. One of the great concerns of the 18th century is what critics later called um, the American atom, the innocent atom that we came to this continent thinking we were going to create a new kind of man. Melville's dealing with him. Um, what's Melville doing with all of this, these set-up chapters? Where's he going to take us? What's going to happen to Billy? Okay, those are the questions ahead of us. Okay. Um, okay. Um, it's good to see you all. Um, I, I'm so grateful for Fred's words. Tough read, but stay with it. Um, I'm going to try to do seven, seven chapters a week, roughly. Some of the chapters are one pages long, so it's not the length of the chapters, it's the language. So stay with it. Um, it takes some work, but, um, and by the way, you might think about getting that Oxford World Classic because it's, the notes in the back are really good, but either that or keep a dictionary close by. <laughs> Bye, you guys. It's good to see you all.
online. Bye. All. You have to do is highlight the word it means. <laughs> Good idea. Where online? God. When you go away, does that automatically cut them off? Oh, wait. Thank <laughs> you.